Beyond DV would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of all the lands from which our listeners join us. The Beyond DV team are privileged to live and work in Mianjin on Turrbal and Yugara country. We pay our deepest respects to the traditional custodians of these lands and to all elders. We also pay our respects to all First Nations women and children who have been impacted by domestic and family violence. Welcome to Stories Beyond DV. My name is Carolyn Robinson and I am the founder and managing director of Beyond DV. Beyond DV is an organisation that supports women and children as they rebuild their lives from domestic and family violence. During this podcast series, we will be speaking with six incredible survivor advocates, each with their own story of recovery. In each episode, we'll be calling on an expert to give us some information about each topic we cover. In today's episode, we'll be discussing recovering from social isolation. Domestic violence survivors often say that social isolation is one of their biggest barriers to recovery. I would like to welcome Missy, our survivor advocate, and our Beyond DV ambassador, Sally, who will be speaking with her today. I was previously married and that marriage fell apart due to just a lack of communication and not really being on the same page anymore. Um, So I guess I met my new partner when I was very vulnerable and not feeling the greatest, I suppose, about myself. And he he love-bombed me and made me feel like I was the most beautiful person in the world, the only person in the world. And no one had ever really made me feel like that. And I thought it was fantastic. So I went with it, you know, because everybody wants to feel good and fabulous about themselves. And that's how he made me feel. And I guess the relationship progressed fairly quickly. We used to work together. That's how I first met him when I was still married previously. And I guess once my marriage did fall apart, I left my, I guess, family home and I moved in with him straight away because I didn't really have anywhere else to go. And it just sort of ballooned from there. He had his own house and then we, within probably a few months, got our own place together. It became an issue at work. Um, so I quit my job so that it was no longer an issue and I got another job. But it was always around what worked for him. You left the workplace because people got to know that you guys were like romantically involved? Is that how it Yeah, because we were romantically involved and because I had been with my previous husband for a long time um, and the staff there were all, um, I guess, supportive of our marriage throughout the time we I worked there and then when things fell apart and I got together with my new partner who I worked with, they were not supportive of that relationship. They felt that it wasn't right for me at the time, I guess, um, and that he perhaps wasn't the best choice <laughs> for me. 
so it just became really difficult. And because of the way that he made me feel, I decided that it was better to just leave that position. He stayed on, but I left and got a part-time job elsewhere. And I actually became pregnant very quickly too in the relationship. However, I did sadly lose that child um, through miscarriage. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, It was a really difficult time, you know, going through that as well. And at the same time, I found out that I have issues um, sustaining a pregnancy. So it there was it was also a very vulnerable time. And by that stage, which this was only six months into the relationship, I was fully reliant on him for everything, financial, friendship, you know, like I didn't go anywhere without him by that stage. Wow, that's so quick, isn't it? Yes. And if we did go somewhere together to be with other people, it was always very controlled by him, like where and when we would go, how I would dress even. Um, It was all really controlling. But at the time it was sort of like, no, you can't wear that. It doesn't look better. Why don't you wear this one? It looks better on you, you know. And It wasn't in a extreme control way. It was made as if he was giving you helpful suggestions. Yes, very sort of underhanded kind of way of saying, no, that's not appropriate for you to be wearing. I want you to wear this instead. But at the time, not realising how actually controlling that was because I wanted to wear what I wanted to wear but he wanted me to wear something. But it was always things so that he felt would make himself look better in the eyes of other people. I was almost like a a bit of a trophy, I guess, a prize. You know, look at this beautiful person that I'm dressed up with. You know, in terms of the isolation, you were saying you, you unfortunately had a miscarriage early on. How did he respond when... Like, was he supportive? Like, how did he respond when he heard that? He was supportive because this was very early on in the relationship and I feel like he was quite supportive and I was terribly upset because sadly it was not my first miscarriage. It was actually, I think, probably my fourth. And by that point in time, I was, you know, starting to question maybe I could never have children Um, So there was support there, you know, to go and find doctors, you know, that could sort of do some testing to find out what was going on, this kind of thing. Um, So there was support there at the beginning. A lot of blame, though, still, you know, because, I mean, obviously miscarriages is not something you can control. It's just one of those things that happens. However, there was still that sort of element of blame. He used it as another way to kind of to humiliate you or put you down. Yeah. Now, the isolation, you were saying that you weren't particularly close to your family beforehand, but you had really great friends. Obviously, he isolated you from your work family quickly by kind of making it that you had to leave. How did it go with your actual friends in your circle of friends, how did that process, how did he do that? Making plans to go out with someone became very difficult, even if it was only to go out for half an hour for a 
a quick catch up with a friend or meet up after work or even lunch at work, you know, because I made new friends at my new workplace. There was a lot of questions all the time about where I was and who I was with and not believing what I would be saying and always an element of I was being unfaithful and it ended up becoming just really difficult to actually maintain those relationships whilst having to explain and explain and explain that I was just going out for a coffee with friends or going out for lunch or catching up on the beach or something. And it just actually became easier to withdraw. It's almost like at the same time that he was isolating you, like, you know, making it so exhausting for you to even consider and you would be thinking about the ramifications. He also was kind of drip feeding quite in the background, like other types of abuse? I mean, was there other emotional abuse, like in terms of put downs or anything like that, that was happening at the same time or gaslighting so that you, you did start to really question your whole grasp of reality? Yeah, there was a whole heap of like, you know, he would say something and then the next day it would be like he had sort of, he would say that I didn't say that, you know, so my whole reality became very distorted because I was never really sure. Like I, it made me start to doubt everything, doubt myself, doubt my sanity, my thoughts, doubt everything because sometimes it just, yeah, it's really hard to explain. Um, when somebody does things like that to you, it's like you're really craving what you thought they were giving to you emotionally when really it was all just a way to sort of manipulate and control you into thinking that they are a certain person when they really weren't. So you're always holding on to that dream of that initial person that you met who made you feel so wonderful, but in actual fact, in hindsight, you realize that that person never existed, that that was actually a mask in order to actually kind of trap you into believing them and staying. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Which is also really hard to come to terms with. If you feel up to it and you can say no, like, how it kind of progressed, like with the children, maybe? Yeah, well, see, that was always a big thing, I think, when we were, you know, right at the start. Like I, I've i always wanted a big family and I've never made, you know, it's always been out there. Like I always wanted a big family and he was the type of person who wanted to populate the world. <laughs> and then when it became evident that, I have issues um, becoming, well, not becoming pregnant, but staying pregnant. My body doesn't produce enough of a certain hormone to sustain early pregnancy. Um, so, you know, he I feel like he was quite supportive, but probably for his own reasons about wanting to have lots of children, you know. So once I did become pregnant... I guess from his point of view, it was like his child was coming into the world. And from my point of view, the child was made from, you know, a place of love. And so how many children did you have together? Uh, We have five children together. Wow. And were they close together? They're very close together in age, um, basically two years apart. 
which looking back, I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way, but looking back, it's a way of keeping me at home and controlling, I guess, more about where I was. Um, Because when you have young children, you need to be sort of close to home a lot and having a lot of young children very close in age is difficult to go out a lot. And it's difficult to do anything other than care, care for kids. Yeah, that's right, you know, because usually if one of them became unwell, they all became unwell because that's sort of how it works and when there's lots of little children around, they tend to share the love. talk about how long were you together for and how you managed to kind of get away or end it? Um, It was probably about 11 to 12 years we were together all up and I knew probably a good two years before we actually separated that things were not good. However, I was by that time completely isolated. I had no money. I had no family support. The only people I really had contact with were people at my children's school. Um, So not even really, I would have said, close friends. It was basically my life revolved around him and his family. I think I did try a few times. We did separate and I did try and leave. However, I did go back because I had no money and I couldn't leave the children with him it wasn't safe until probably it was one night he came at me and it was like a million light bulbs shattered in my brain and I knew that if we didn't leave or he didn't leave that we wouldn't survive because he came at me and he was He couldn't see anything else around him except me and he very nearly was physically, very nearly physically assaulted my children on his way to get to me and I have no idea what would have happened if I hadn't picked up the phone and threatened to call the police right then and there. What would have happened that night? But anyway, he left but it was, it was a light bulb moment, you know, and I made him leave and I sat by the window all night with the phone in my hand and something for protection in my other hand because waiting for him to come back. And the next day I called the police and then that's another part of what happened, I guess. That's so courageous of you to share and... I guess something that maybe people don't really realize is that I don't know how many times you actually have had the opportunity to share that. A few, I guess. It's not something that you necessarily get the opportunity to talk about very often. And it's something that's such a traumatic event. Um, So do you need a moment? Are you okay? Yeah. You're amazing. You're amazing. You're so courageous. You're so brave. Just the look he had in his eyes that night, you know, you just know, like, when 
I've never been in a situation like that before ever where someone's coming at you and you know that they want to kill you. Just so full of hatred and just this, I don't know, it's like blackness is darkness. How did this isolation impact you? When he left, I knew, like I had nothing. I had no money, no support. What I really needed, I guess, at the time was to find a safe place to live for myself and my children. And I eventually ended up doing it on my own and I got a private rental. And it was probably after we moved into this house, I then looked at, well, now I need a future for myself and my children. I hadn't worked for, you know, 10 years or more. And I knew that I needed support from somebody and a friend of mine was involved in an organisation beyond EV and I reached out to her and asked if she could help and she referred me through to Beyond DB and Beyond DB contacted me and I was part of the online support group and found this bunch of amazing women who they just get it they understand and support and even without having to explain myself they just they just know you know because they've been through it different ways and different things themselves and it was wonderful to be part of something where I didn't have to constantly explain how I felt or what I was going through. I could just say what I wanted to say without a fear of being not understood or dismissed. And then once restrictions were lifted, I got to go in person and I was terrified. I still remember the first time because we hadn't been out in a long time and I was still very, my anxiety was through the roof. And I remember contacting my friend and saying I didn't think I could do it. I wasn't strong enough. And she encouraged me and I walked in there and I met Carolyn for the first time and she just looked at me and she hugged me and it just felt like the first person to have physical contact with and she just enveloped me in love and this belief in me that I didn't have for myself and she supported and encouraged me and it grew from there going to weekly morning teas with all the ladies who have been through things and all the support people that they have there to talk to and interact with and it was just a beautiful safe place to be despite everything that was going on in the background of my life I could go there and I could feel free oh that's so beautiful and so special to share that and I think that that answers that question so beautifully in that the isolation 
I mean, I, I think that that's why social connection is one of the five pillars that Beyond DV kind of recovery program is founded on because it's so important, isn't it? I mean, it's more like how did the connection impact your ability to recover and heal? I mean, would you be able to answer that, how that social connection with people who'd been through similar things allowed you to recover and heal? So I think when you go through things like this kind of trauma, you become so ashamed and you worry that people will judge you for things that aren't even in your control and the shame prevents you from reaching out to people and places like Beyond TV that have women that have been through this stuff. There's no shame. There's no judgment. It doesn't matter what you can kind of go there and say. The people that are there, they've been through things. They understand. There's no shame. There's no judgment. They can just listen and support you. And what were the strategies that you found beneficial to rebuild your connections? So I think for probably two years before we separated, I completely withdrew from anybody and everybody that I used to talk to in such a way because I was so ashamed of everything that was happening in my life and I didn't know how to fix it or how to ask for help. So I withdrew and I just lived in this bubble. And when things finally did blow up and we separated, people reached, some people reached out to me and I reached out to other people. And I guess the connections that I had made even though I didn't think at the time that they were very strong, these people helped me in so many ways that I could never even begin to repay what they did for me, even if it was just listening to me. And slowly, I guess it was a way for me to be able to rebuild trust in people because I trusted nobody because I didn't know who I could trust and who I couldn't trust. The circle was really, really small. And I guess over the past five years, it's been since we separated, my circle, it's grown and gotten smaller and grown again due to different things that happen. My trust is very important to me. And if I feel like my trust is not being um, respected, then I just sort of slowly back away. I don't even sort of really explain myself anymore. I just slowly back away. And the circle I have around me is full of people that have supported me and always will support me. And no matter what happens, they always support me. And it's these friendships, which some are from before, some are from during, and some are from after, that keep me going because even if I don't get to see people in person a lot, you know, maintaining phone contact and social media contact, like a lot of probably my relationships are based around that due to time constraints on my part and everyone else's part as well, I guess. But I feel 
there's probably two or three people that I can tell absolutely anything to. One of those is now my father, who at the time we didn't really have much of a relationship and I was terrified to call him and tell him what had happened. And actually out of all of my family, he was the one person who actually understood and supported me no matter what. It didn't matter what I called to tell him. He just listened. He just listened and sometimes that's the most important part. You know, we just need people to listen. Do you trust yourself more about feeling like intuition, like, hmm, that doesn't feel like that's good. I'm just going to moonwalk out of this relationship with friends and stuff like that. Is that something that, you know, you, you feel like you've got a little bit more of a radar? Oh, sure, definitely. I mean, I've always been a very sort of go with your gut type person, but since all of this, it's like if it doesn't feel right in my gut, I just don't do it. I don't even try, you know, because it's just if it doesn't feel right, it's no, you know, and I do tend to stand by that and I've made a lot of decisions, I guess, in the past few years that I look back and I think, is that the right one? But at the time, it just there is no other way for me now. If it doesn't feel right, I don't do it. And if it feels right in my gut and in my heart, then that's what I go with. And even if that means losing friends along the way, then that's just how it is. My boundaries are very strong. Sometimes things happen and I don't see straight away, but then it might take me a little while to actually see people's true intentions. And as soon as I'm aware of what's going on, I just say, no, it's almost like, you know, when you're a child and you say, stop, I don't like it. That's what I do. And I just back away. I don't, you know, before I used to have to feel like I had to explain why we're not going to be friends anymore and this kind of thing. But now I'm just like, no, I don't even need to do that now. I don't need to justify why I'm protecting myself and why you are no longer valid in my life. Can you talk a little bit about what else you've done to support yourself moving forward with five children on your own? When I first went to DV, I had trouble. My anxiety was really high. I had trouble looking people in the eye. You know, like I couldn't really sort of, I felt like I was never able to hold proper conversations. And through Beyond DV, I participated in a lot of personal development programs and going to the morning teas every week and spending lots and lots of time there. There was a time when I was there every day of the week and it was all a constant learning curve and working on my confidence and becoming able to get to a point where I was able to, when things were being offered to me, like, would you like to study? Well, yes, I would. I can do that. And with help of, you know, beautiful trainers and workplace colleagues when I had to do placement and things like that, I was able to um, complete study and training and workplace and get myself a job, you know, which 
looking back at the time, like that all happened over a period of probably six months, you know, and from not being able to look people in the eye to being able to go from that to holding a job and actually feel like I was a valuable contributor to my workplace was amazing, you know. Every little step helped my confidence and every little bit of support that I received from Beyond VB helped me, you know, in my recovery journey. And I took it with everything I had. I gave it everything I had despite still trying to care for my children and make sure there was always constant stability. You were moving yourself forward. Do you feel like you had like a single-mindedness about it? I mean, this sounds like there was such a strong will, but also like a real focus. Do you feel like some sort of kind of hyper-focus or something came back where you were really like focused on what, what do I need to do to get myself moving forward? And from what I hear, you were like a star student on all the courses. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I feel like because at the start I had no money and it was really, really difficult to do anything, especially with five young children with no finances, and it became apparent to me very quickly that somehow I needed to be able to provide for my family, you know, for a financial future, a stable financial future. So I did a workshop with a lady that was about my dreams, you know, and one of my dreams was to, I guess, help people not so much teach but to in that sort of a pathway where I was helping people to become the best that they could be, I guess. So being somebody who could do that, you know, I sort of took on the course of being a teacher aide and I loved it. It was like... I was able to do it with confidence because I'd spent a lot of time in my children's school helping out. So I was very familiar with all of the formats and the, the sessions and the, the workload that we had to do. And it just seemed a natural pathway and I seemed to have a, a really good knack for it. And honestly, I have to give an enormous credit to my trainer because she was so amazing and so supportive and no matter when I thought I couldn't do it, she always worked me back up to believe in myself. You know, she, I guess, loaned her belief in me enough until I had my own belief in myself and, yeah, I I finished it very quickly because I was determined, so determined to provide a better future for my children, you know, and financially that's really important because without a financial sort of stable life, it's very difficult to provide. And five children cost a lot of money. (laughs) They really do. What does your life look like now in terms of the things that you feel that are positive, the things that still sit with you and maybe the things that you have dreams of? So I think nowadays I work every day, which is sometimes tricky with my children trying to find the balance, but I love my job and I love my family. So it's sort of, I guess, 
I'm doing what I can to make it work for my future. And I'm always moving forward, even if it doesn't really seem like I am, because I have dreams of wanting to do further study. And I'm in a place where, whilst I guess I still do look over my shoulder to a certain extent, sometimes more than others, I'm always trying to keep moving forwards. And that means pushing myself to become, I guess, not so much a better person, but I want to be able to help so many people in ways that I guess I wasn't able to find help for myself at the time. And whether that be by being recognised and telling my story, which I have, you know, I did two years ago, I stood up in front of a room full of 60 people and told my story which was really hard, but that was like another step in overcoming so many different things. I've never been good at public speaking, you know, but finding a strength within yourself in the days when the darkness is still there, that is the key. I think always having hope for the future and that's what keeps me going and my love for my family and my life these days Every day it's working on becoming more um, uh, more stable, you know, not so up and down and looking for a life that where we go on adventures and we find new things and we can just jump in the car and go wherever we want and, you know, we've been on train trips and I've mowed the lawn and done so many things I was never able to do before and it's always about, I think, pushing yourself and using Google when you don't know how to do stuff, (laughs) you know, and just finding ways to make things work, even if it's just packing up a barbecue and going to the local park and just getting out into into nature. Nature is so very healing and... I've gone and stood on tops of mountains and just the feeling of being free and knowing that I can be who I am and that my children love me and that I have such great connections now and, you know, I say moving forward, but it's every step is a step, no matter what it is, even if it's just getting up in the morning, that's still a step, you know doing different things that you would never, I like to sort of challenge myself in ways that I didn't think were possible. And I guess overcoming the fear that is involved around that, because sometimes you do hear that voice in your head from before saying, you can't do that. You won't ever be able to do that. And just making that little voice go away and saying, well, do you know what? I did do that. And I did it really well. And I'm very proud of myself. You should be proud of yourself. I'm proud of you. You're amazing. Like you absolutely embody so much. It's resilience, but it's so soft. You know, you've not hardened with it. It's almost like you continue to walk with an open heart. I do try, you know, I've always sort of been like that. I think the biggest thing for me through everything, my entire life, but particularly these last few years, is to always have hope, no matter what. 
you know, even in the darkest hours, there's just that little voice that says, just keep going. You will get there. And that little light, even though some days it's really, really hard to see the little light, and at the moment it's shining bright. Hope is such a wonderful thing. Everyone sort of says it's always, oh, you need to believe in yourself more and to trust yourself more. And when you come out of situations like what I've been through, it's really hard. I didn't believe in myself at all. Not even the littlest bit. I believed in my love for my children and wanting to make a better life for my children and make them happy memories and things like that. And I ended up at Beyond DB in a place where... I feel like it is their belief in me. They loaned their belief in me until I found my own belief in me, you know? And I think you need to find people who do believe in you and will believe in you no matter what. You know, they can see things in you when you can't. And finding those people and trusting those people, you know, and taking everything you can to learn along the way is just a beautiful thing. You know, people always say, oh, you know, you must believe that you're a beautiful person and that you're amazing, but it's very difficult when for a long time you don't think that. And even now, a lot of days, I probably don't think that, but I like to say I borrow other people's belief in me. So many other people believe in me and they say these things to me. So it's slowly sinking in. Let other people's belief in you become your belief in yourself. I'd now like to welcome our expert, Sharon Oropaling. Sharon is a tireless community advocate, a mental health professional and a disruptive change maker with academic backgrounds in psychology, neuroscience and behaviour management. She is passionate about not leaving any woman behind and building connected communities where the essence of Ubuntu, the African philosophy of living, meaning I am because we are, drives all of the work that she does. One of the most common tools in a relationship where domestic violence is occurring is often the isolation of a victim from their support network. Now, many people don't understand this because the narrative around isolating the person is often centered in this deceiving ability of perpetrators to exert their control and change the narrative to say, you know, I care about you. I want to spend more time with you. There is no one else in this world who loves you more than I do. You need to spend every single waking minute with me. In a normal healthy relationships, we know that people do not and cannot spend 24 hours together, uh, no matter how much they love each other, because we're individuals. We have our 
plans for the day. We have different activities that we need to engage in. Uh, we have different friendships and connections that we build over the years. So it is absolutely normal in every health relationships that people would have connections outside of the two people that are in a relationship. However, when victims of abuse start to get into this really dark, isolated space is when their partners start to stop their access to those others that potentially are able to ask them, how are you going? What's happening for you? I see a bruise there. Where does that come from? So you start to literally build a wall around the victim and their families. And there is no bridge to any possibility of telling anybody about what's going on. So you find that a lot of the victims of domestic and family violence are alone in the experience. They feel alone in that experience. They feel like they, nobody else can talk to because also they're questioning themselves. Why do anybody else need to hear about my issues? Because this person actually really loves me. They want to spend all that time with me. But it's all because of jealousy. There is emotional manipulation that happens where people end up being checked on very constantly. Where are you? Send me the video of where you are at. Tell me the location where you were at. Or they are actually being followed. So you find that the way this manifest is causing a lot of anxiety. So whenever you are outside, you're thinking, where am I? What am I doing? Who's looking at me? What's happening? This becomes very challenging. And hence the issue of anxiety and other mental health issues start coming on. Thank you for listening to Stories Beyond DV. And thank you to our guests, our survivor advocate, Missy, our expert, Sharon Oropaling, and our interviewer, Sally Steele. On our final episode, we'll be talking about recovering from intergenerational abuse. We hope you can tune in. If you are being impacted by domestic and family violence, or you know someone else who is, please don't hesitate to reach out for help either by calling 000 if you are in immediate danger or the National Domestic Violence Helpline at 1-800-RESPECT. You can find out more information about the programs and services we offer for victim survivors of domestic and family violence on our website, beyonddv.org.au. Please follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to this episode and share with a friend. It really helps to spread the word you never know who might need to hear this. Stories Beyond DV was made possible with support from the Zonta Club of Brisbane. This series was produced and sound designed by Tiffany Dimack. I'm Carolyn. Take care, and I look forward to talking to you next time. <laughs>